0: What am I without this newsreader title, which I guess I hadn't realised quite how much I had pinned who I was to that status and that name. And it was almost like I just forgot what I was good at.
1: Welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast dedicated to helping you reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of changing career paths, so you could do more meaningful work and truly enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have decided to step off the beaten path to reinvent their careers. We talk through their unique personal journeys, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to share her story of relaunching her career as a journalist and news presenter to become an author and media trainer. We're going to talk about the professional challenges associated with not only becoming a new parent, but also moving to a new country while you've got a newborn in hand. Afterwards, I'll describe how you can decide if and when to charge for the things you've been doing for free. Today I'm speaking with Nicole Webb, who's a journalist, presenter, media trainer, and author. She spent 20 years in the Australian television industry working as a reporter, producer, and presenter. A key player at 24-hour news channel Sky News for a decade, Nicole covered stories spanning tragedy to triumph, and she also produced many of Sky's high-rating programs in 2010 nicole and her hotelier husband moved to hong kong right when she had just become a mother where they then lived for four years before moving to xian in northwest china nicole continued her work in media in the asia pacific region before returning to australia in 2017 where she remained focused on communications nicole's work now includes hosting premier events presenting for corporate companies and media training and consulting Now, if you've ever moved countries, or even cities, although relocating can certainly be exciting, you probably also know that any location change can be incredibly disruptive, jarring, and disorienting, even if you move to a place where people speak the same language. Also, if you're a parent listening to this, you know how life-altering it can be to welcome a newborn child into your life. Nicole's going to explain what it was like for her to move to a new country where no one really spoke her language while becoming a new mother and trying to restart her career all at the same time. I hope you enjoy hearing her honest thoughts on how she managed to find her way and actually thrive through all these simultaneous major life changes. You can get all the show notes from today's episode at careerrelaunch.net slash 85. We recorded this episode late last year, and Nicole spoke with me from Sydney, Australia. Good evening, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining me on Career Relaunch. It is great to have you on the show.
0: Hello, Joseph. It's uh, fantastic to be here with you.
1: I know it's getting late in the evening over there in Australia, so I appreciate your time here. I want to dive right into this. and First of all, just kick off by getting a sense of what you're up to right now, what's keeping you busy right now in your career and also your life.
0: Yep. It's late here in Sydney, so I'll try to make sense. But Life is busy. You know, we've been back from China for four years now. And I think it takes a bit of time to find your mojo and settle in wherever you go. And so it feels like ever since sort of the pandemic, we had lockdown for four months. And ever since that wrapped up, work has been coming at me. So I'm doing a lot of publicity for other authors, which is something I never expected to do. And that's really good fun. So I'm doing that. That's keeping me busy. And I'm doing a bit of presenting again, which I haven't done really for quite a long time. You know, I did a lot of emceeing in that in Asia. Yeah. So I've been doing a few TV commercials and things, which has been fun getting back into the studio and um, media training. So it's kind of come full circle, really. Everything that I sort of learned in those early days is coming back into use. So it's been great.
1: Now you mentioned your early days. I do want to go back to how you started your career many years ago. Before we get to that, could you also just describe like what's happening in your life right now outside of work? What's keeping you busy? What's on your mind right now?
0: Oh, gee, what's happening in my life? Well, we were in lockdown for four months in Sydney, so nothing was happening, but I was still working, and we've been out of lockdown probably about five weeks. So not long. So it's just been really, I guess, slowly, slowly stepping back into the real world, going to the shops for the first time again, going and getting hair colour and cut, sitting at a cafe, all those things that we take for granted. And, you know, everyone the world over knows what that's like now. And just... Getting back into life again. So it's been good. It's been a bit overwhelming because, you know, you sit on your bum for about four months, not doing too much, watching Netflix, and suddenly you've plunged into the world and people are having parties and gatherings, and it's all quite people y.
1: (laughs) It is very jarring that adjustment. I found that that was pretty tough. Like, I've recently gone back to doing a lot of in person engagements and I found that it's quite a rattling experience almost to just throw yourself back into being around tons of people again. So I totally understand that.
0: I agree. I think it is. You know, you think you can't wait to see people again. And and it is exciting when you first turn up to a gathering. But at the same time, I found myself sort of, putting it off, you know, and sort of trying to schedule things, wasn't so busy, wasn't one on top of each other, you know, one thing at a time, I thought one step at a time, because it is just, it's overwhelming. Like you say, you're not used to being around people and face to face. We've spent most of the time on Zoom for the last two years, haven't we?
1: Definitely. I completely understand that. And I know that at the same time, you're probably somebody who's quite used to all sorts of different media and being on different platforms and formats because I know that you actually haven't always been a media publicist, but actually you started your career off in journalism. And I was wondering if we could go back to your first chapter back in your early career in Sydney when you were in your early 20s. Could you tell me a little bit about how your career kicked off in journalism and then we can move forward from there?
0: Yeah, so I was one of those people that when I was 17 in high school and sat in the career guidance officer and she asked me what I wanted to do, I really wasn't sure and I knew I wanted to live a life less ordinary but what that meant, I didn't know. Hollywood maybe, but I couldn't act or sing so that was out of the question. Uh, What else? And so I remember she said to me, well, what about journalism? And I thought, you know, that could be an interesting career and I like to dig deep and investigate and find out things so that I had probably quite like the idea of being a newsreader so from then on I sort of made up my mind right that's what I'll do not being naive to how difficult that would be to get into and I managed to get into university doing a Bachelor of Arts majoring in journalism and public relations and went off and did that for my three years and finished and of course it was so hard to get a job it was near impossible blondes young girls wanting to be reporters on tv were a dime a dozen so to stand out from the crowd was really tough So I ended up getting a job in radio in sales for a while. So I was sort of given the phone book and said, here's your client base, go out and sell radio advertising, which was a bit daunting. So I did that for a while. And then the TV station, local TV, I'm talking country town too poached me for the TV station and I did that but I still always had this yearning to be a TV journalist so I started making a demo tape with some of the guys at the station there that did the ads and sent that out to all of the news directors around the country and of course kept getting a lot of no's, rejection letters, you name it, kept pursuing and persisting. I'd drive to the car park in my lunch break and look at my notebook and just ring all of these news directors each month and you know have you got anything for me, me nothing came up and in the end I actually ended up leaving the city I was in and went to Melbourne where my parents were living gave myself a year to get into journalism or said I'd have to go into sales again or PR and that year was almost up and a little country town in called Tamworth in New South Wales Australia the news director called me and said you're a perfect example of persistence pays off would you like a job as a TV reporter and I you know didn't hesitate I was off like a shot (laughs) the rest is history.
1: Tamworth, I think you mentioned this to me before, it's like a six hour drive from Sydney. And were you thinking that there was gonna be an opportunity out there for you in news journalism?
0: Well, I kind of knew that in Australia, a lot of the country towns had small bureaus. So they might not have been the main headquarters, but they would have a couple of journalists and a couple of cameramen. So, you know, I was desperate. I wanted this job so badly that I was like, hey, get me out of the city. I'll go to this town of 30,000 people and see what I can make of it. So I drove, it was from Melbourne at that point. So I think that was about 20 hours in the car. And, uh, yeah, landed in Tamworth and started reporting. And, of course, you know, the stories were, (laughs) you know, anything from the Big Tomato competition to a double murder suicide. You just didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, it was a sleepy town, but all sorts, you know, happened over the two years that I was there. So it was a really good grounding, I guess, and a good starting point as a journo to get in the thick of it.
1: How did you then proceed from there? Were you enjoying the reporting? Is that what you felt was the place you wanted to be in journalism? How did things evolve for you from there?
0: Yeah, look, I did. I loved it. I loved it. But I always had this thing in me that I wanted to get to the big smoke. And in Australia, I guess that was Sydney. So, you know, I still had my eye on doing that. And I got offered a job to open one of the bureaus up on the Gold Coast, which was, again, bigger than Tamworth, but not the city. So I went up there for a year. And then I thought, you know what, I'll just go to Sydney and maybe try and freelance. And that's what I did. I ended up in Sydney. And started freelancing at a lot of the major networks just whenever I could get shifts. Basically I was a news producer so I would go in and sit on the computer and tap out stories and put bulletins together which I liked doing as well. So eventually I decided full-time job would be best because this whole freelance business was a bit tricky and I got offered a job on the business program with Sky News so I was the producer for that. It was a half hour business show each night. So that was great. I loved doing that. And I also got to do a bit of presenting because at the time Sky News produced quite a few programs and one of those was Health News. And that was just a pre-recorded program. So, you know, it wasn't live. So I kind of could dip my toes, I guess, in presenting a little bit and start honing that craft, which I at that point had really decided I wanted to be a newsreader. So I just kept going and going until eventually I got to do the main news. And Sky News is a 24-hour news channel, a bit like B-Sky being in the UK and obviously not as big as as that by any means, (laughs) a much, much smaller version. But back When I was there, it was 24-hour news, so you would do a six-hour shift and you would read six bulletins back to back. So I really loved doing that and I ended up doing that for about a decade.
1: That's really interesting. I've always been really fascinated with the world of journalism. We actually have some parallels, Nicole, because I I think we may have talked about this before, but I worked very briefly in news journalism for Hawaii Public Radio. Oh, yes, It was just radio, it wasn't TV, and I was in the production side of things, and then sort of like you, I started dabbling in the news anchor side of things. Just in the TV side, is that a common transition to make, going from production to being on air?
0: I think it is now, I think perhaps, and was then, but I think maybe 20 years before that, not so much. You were sort of pinned as a news presenter from the start and often news presenters weren't even journalists back then. Whereas nowadays, I think you tend to start off, most news readers will have been a journalist on the road or producing, in some way they would have been involved in creating the news and then led up to that presenting gig.
1: So it sounds like this is going really well for you. It sounds like you're enjoying working at Sky News. You're on air for six hours at a time. So you're definitely doing what you want to do. When we spoke before, I know you went through a bit of a transition in, I guess this was like your early to mid thirties. Can you tell me a little bit about what was happening, I guess, in your personal life and what triggered you to then change directions in your career?
0: So I was reading at Sky News, living the life driving a mini convertible, living oh. in my apartment, having a great time. And I was single, but then I um, fortunately met my husband on a blind date and he was in hotels at the time. And he did say to me early on, you know, we they like to move us around in hotels and there are opportunities overseas. And I did shut him down quite quickly because I'd been such a career person. And I really thought it wasn't that I didn't want to go overseas. It was just that I thought I'd missed the boat. You know, I was in my mid thirties and I thought, I've kind of missed that time and I don't really want to give up what I've achieved so far. So we sort of put that to bed because he was from England anyway and come here as a backpacker. So he was away as far as he was concerned. And then maybe after we got married, maybe a year later, a job came up in Hong Kong at the W. And for some reason, you know, I just thought, I have been doing this for a decade now and I could quite easily be doing the exact same thing in another 10 years. I couldn't see how things would change and I felt like I was somehow losing a bit of that ambition and losing my mojo a bit, I guess. I was a bit tired with it all. So I remember just saying, you know what, we should do it. Let's throw your hat in the ring and see if you get the job in Hong Kong and let's go. Uh, he nearly fell out of bed when I said that and he did, and he got the job. And next thing I know, I'm sort of resigning from my career. And also the same week found out that we were having a baby. So it was a bit of a two pronged affair.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so we- Those are two really big pieces of news, right? You're finding out that you're moving abroad. You're finding out that you're going to become parents. Mm-hmm. Can you take me back to that moment? What was running through your head that week when you found uh, all this out? Just
0: gulp. Like, oh my gosh, is this really happening? You know, and I can remember being on air, and I was just newly pregnant, but my mum knew, and she would watch me on air from she lived up in Queensland, and she was like, "I can't believe you're pregnant, and I can't believe you're leaving." But you know, she had encouraged us to do this, but it was just so daunting. I remember James went ahead of me and I had to sort of pack up the house and sell the cars and do all of that. And he would sort of, when he got there, he would send me a few pieces of information about what it was like there because I really didn't have much idea. I'd been there once, probably 10 years prior for just a couple of days. So I didn't know what it was like to live there, let alone have a baby there. Of course, when we got there and it was fantastic to have a baby there, you know, amazing.
1: So this was your first time living abroad. Is that correct, Nicole?
0: Pretty much. I mean, I had moved from New Zealand to Australia as a teenager, but, you know, same, same.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. I guess Hong Kong, we're talking about totally different culture, totally different language. People are speaking Cantonese there. Can you describe what that transition was like for you? Because this is a pretty major move for you. It
0: was a big transition. I remember just dealing with your body's changing anyway, because you're pregnant. And we didn't have a home. We lived in the hotel for six weeks, which was great, but it was still quite unnerving and James was obviously really busy with his job because he had, you know, a new job and a lot to prove and very long hours in Hong Kong. You know, if you came home at 7pm, that was considered an early mark. So I had a lot of time on my own and I'm sort of waddling the streets, getting bigger and bigger and a bit of lost identity. What am I without this newsreader title, which I guess I hadn't realised quite how much I had pinned who I was to that status and that name And it was almost like I just forgot what I was good at, especially once Ava was born. And suddenly you're a mum and you've got this new baby. And I couldn't even think of working at that time. And then I thought, what would I do anyway? I'm just a newsreader. I, you know, I just read the auto cue. What else could I possibly do? And it sort of took a good friend of mine who was there and said, look, don't forget, you've got 20 years' experience, and it's not just reading the news, it's writing and producing and speaking and creative things, all of this. And it just took me a while to sort of work that out, I think.
1: Can we talk about this shift for a second of going from full time employee and professional to full time mom? Because this is something that comes up a lot I mean I see it around me I, as you know I've got a four-year-old at home and this shift from being full-time employed to I guess being at home changing diapers and singing yes. nursery rhymes I know can, that's can, you just, it. Like, can you just describe what that was like for you
0: oh it was just it was very strange I guess you know I mean I'd always it's not that I'd ever been desperate to be a mum but I thought I would be but I was always such a career person and it was strange you know and I'd be down in this big giant shopping centre which was underneath that we lived on the 43rd floor of a high-rise apartment in the end and just so many different cultural aspects to it as well. And having a baby in Hong Kong, so many people have their two cents worth, and the cultural things come into play, and what I'm feeding her and what I'm doing with her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you really yeah. get questioned and put on the spot. And I just felt quite alone with it, I guess. And I ended up joining a group of pregnant women who were all due around the same time. In hindsight, it was the best thing I could have done, but I just remember it was really daunting. And also I just remember seeing housewife on the visa applications and that threw me as well. So it's like, that's not me. What's happened to me? Where am I?
1: Just the emotions of going from being a newsreader at a reputable organization to this quote unquote housewife, as you described it, that to me would be quite shocking and kind of hard to stomach.
0: I can still feel the feelings when I talk about it now, you know, and I used to, and I think it was hard for James as well, because he was so supportive of me. And it was hard for him though, to know what to do and what to say because, and he was trying to juggle this new job and support me and I'm here whinging. And I, you know, I think I was quite a pain in the bone for a while (laughs) until I sorted myself out.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about that Your daughter's name is Ava, is that Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so she, I guess, was only a few weeks old. And then at that time, you actually did manage to find a new gig. Could you explain how that came about and what you ended up doing there in Hong Kong?
0: well actually the first gig I ever did was a I was master of ceremonies for an event and I'd never done this before and I guess people think oh well you've read the news so I'm sure you can be an MC for the night but I was terrified because by nature I'm actually quite a shy person so standing up and talking in front of a whole group of people that could see me was quite different to a camera where I can't see the people so <laughs> I was really terrified when I got asked to do this job Ava was nine weeks old wow. and I just thought wow but I knew I had to say yes, because I also knew that I had to have something of my own. And How'd that, that was come really important. up
1: for you? Like, did this? It just... was
0: um, word of mouth. I think it was actually a friend of mine who couldn't do it and suggested me. So it was one of those things that I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And they had these award nights and yeah, they are fantastic and became really good friends and had me back every year. So it was worth doing it.
1: How'd you balance that with having a nine week old Baby at the start. I'm trying to imagine how you pull that well,
0: off. Well, you know, I was lucky. I remember at the time James' parents were in town from the UK. So they looked after Ava. And, you know, I remember having breast pads in and trying to find an evening dress that was three sizes bigger than I was used to because I was still had pregnancy weight and all of that. So it was all a bit a new era for me, I guess. So I did that, but it gave me the confidence again and reminded me that I can do this. You know, I have got this experience. And I think a lot of women, even if they're not living overseas, struggle when they first have a baby because they're so much out of their comfort zone. And then they have to step back into the workforce and it's not easy.
1: Okay. So you go from working full-time to being full-time mom, and now you're back to working full-time. What was that transition like for you? Just the mechanics of that and also just the emotions of that?
0: I was really lucky. I didn't ever go back full-time with Ava. So what I did was I just... MCing was sort of irregular. So it was just enough to sort of, I guess feed me a little bit of enthusiasm and confidence. And then I also started writing. And while I'd been a journalist and I've been writing scripts for years, that's quite different, as you know, to actually writing an article. So I started just writing for some parenting websites because I guess I was trying to combine what was happening in my life with my media experience. And what was happening is that I was changing nappies and visiting change rooms all around Hong Kong and trying to get on in taxis and trying to find my way with no Cantonese and trying to fumble my way through it. So I started writing articles about parenthood and I did it for free in the beginning just to get my name known, I think. And thankfully that sort of led to other things like writing for magazines and what have you. and it was never full-time but it was flexible so it was great having Ava I could do it in my own time so to speak and then that's what sort of prompted me to start my blog doing all of that writing. I guess I found that I had quite a passion for it and I really enjoyed it so about on the two-year mark of being in Hong Kong, I started my blog, which was Mint Mock Amusings. It just fueled me through this whole pregnancy and parenthood and sleepless night. So Mint Mock Amusings, um, the hotelier's wife and expat affair in Hong Kong, it was. So I just started writing what was happening in Hong Kong and all of the crazy, amazing, fascinating things that I would see every day as an expat. And that blog soon monetized itself. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but I soon learned there were ways of doing that and making a bit of extra money on the side. So yeah, all of these little things, I guess, were were enough to make me feel like I had a sense of purpose again.
1: You mentioned one thing there about monetizing your blog. I know that there's a lot of people who maybe listen to this show and they're thinking about doing some writing on the side and whether they want to make money from it or not, they just want to share their thoughts with the world. How did you turn your blog in from being just a place to share your thoughts to something that actually was generating money? Could you share some of the mechanics around that?
0: It's not easy. I'll say that. And it's really difficult to make a lot of money, but people do. That's for sure. You just have to be very, very dedicated and it's almost a full-time job. But for me, I was able to do sponsored posts. So that would be a company and always a company that I felt aligned with what the blog was, which was travel and expat and parenting and all of that. That might be an airline or something that might sponsor a blog post. So that means I would write any sort of article that I would normally write, but maybe I would just write a sentence in there that might relate to, say, flying somewhere and then they would pay to have a link to their website. So, you know, you can do those. Um, Obviously, you don't want to do those all the time because then the blog becomes inauthentic. But every four or five blogs, you can put one of those in there and that gives you a bit of money. And then another way is through um, affiliate advertising, And one of my biggest affiliates was OFX, which um, you can transfer money wherever you are overseas back home and you don't have to pay a fee, et cetera. So that was a great one for my expat community. And so every time someone sort of found that through my blog, which I advertised it on there and joined up through me, I would get a percentage of that commission. So it's not a bad way to earn a little bit of money. It's not a lot, but it's certainly something for your efforts.
1: You're doing some emceeing. You're doing some presenting. You started writing mocha musings. I guess you're a few years now into being in Hong Kong. Are you guys like are you and James thinking this is where you're going to be for a while? Or what was the plan from here on out?
0: look, we like to think that was where we were going to be because we were loving it. You know, a couple of years in, we really, you know, you find your feet and you find friends and you start to really get into the swing of things. And we loved Hong Kong and we probably could have stayed there forever. But the problem now was that James was number two in the hotel and he needed to really get to be the general manager to progress his career further. So we started sort of putting out feelers and of course jobs would come up all the time um, from Bangkok to Seoul to Singapore, all over the place, India. And James would sort of put his hand up and he might get to the last interview or the job would fall through or whatever. But China just kept coming up because they were building so many hotels. You know, I think in one year, the company was Starwood at the time, built 80 hotels in China so it was almost getting a bit hard to avoid China and we did get offered a job in Wuhan so when no one knew where Wuhan was or that it even existed and I remember we went up there for the weekend because we had to decide by the Monday so we went to have a look and make this decision which was just so hard and overwhelming because we didn't really want to leave Hong Kong and we ended up turning that job down but we soon realized that we couldn't say no too much more so uh, eventually she came up on our radar and I just remember Googling it because that's all I had to go on and it looked quite attractive as far as Chinese cities go, you know, the quintessential Chinese architecture, lanterns sort of hanging around the city. And I said to James, I think we've just got to do it and get it done. We'll go for a year or whatever. You get your first general manager role and then you'll be more set up. And I thought I'll just take my laptop and I'll continue my blog. Of course, there'll be a lot to write about in China. Um, I'll continue some of the contracts I had with magazines, et cetera. But I couldn't work properly, of course, because you needed a proper visa and that was all very difficult to get. So four years into Hong Kong and we moved to the middle of China with Ava three and a half years old.
1: What was your setup? in China. For those people who've never been to China, where were you living? What was that like? How was your adjustment?
0: So Xi'an is inland. It's if you've ever looked at a map of China, there's Beijing up the north on the east coast and then Shanghai is sort of further down Xi'an's in the middle but inland quite far so landlocked a city of 9 million people and there are many 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 cities of 9 million that's quite a small city in comparison no one really speaks English a very few Westerners when you consider Hong Kong's had maybe 100,000 expats maybe there were 1,000 in Xi'an tops we lived in the hotel, but we lived in the residences at the end of the hotel, but it was sort of like being in the hotel still. And it was just, you know, huge culture shock for me, for all of us, just thinking, what are we doing here? Just the noise was just crazy and chaotic, just horns beeping 24-7 day and night because they tend to use the horn instead of the indicator. Um, Traffic was just wild, careening all over the road, no lanes, no orderly driving, bicycles with four or five people piled up high, just so many people you know we would step outside of the hotel and Ava and I were fair game we were really pounced on because many people had never seen a white person in the flesh so Ava you know this little pocket rocket that was three and a half with long blonde hair and fair skin was just they would crowd around us and take photos and touch her and touch her hair and someone picked her up in that first week and I just remember being horrified <laughs> thinking oh my gosh what are we doing how am I I going to survive? You know, and I couldn't speak any Mandarin at that point. So it was just tough in the beginning.
1: I guess the closest I've experienced to that, which isn't quite the same level of difference you're talking about here, is my wife is Turkish. And I remember when we would go to Turkey, that people are, they're just not that familiar with seeing somebody who looks like me. And there's a lot of people who kind of hover around us. People are very friendly, but it's also quite daunting and Quite startling when people want to pick up your child and take them inside your store is. and take pictures with them. <laughs> it's kind of odd. It's
0: alarming, you know. And it at is, first yeah. I didn't realize that it was harmless, you know, and I didn't realize that it was just pure fascination. So you you're on guard because you don't know. I could just imagine losing Ava in those crowds of oh, people. Yeah. It was just terrifying. So until I understood what it was all about which took quite some time to understand the culture, understand these people and how they feel and how they think. It was a real work in progress.
1: So you're in China. And are you then thinking that at this point, you're going to be there temporarily? And then what ended up coming up next for you guys? I think in uh, 2017, you made another move. Is that right?
0: So we ended up spending two and a half years in Xi'an, which by the time we left, we really loved it. I mean, look, it wasn't Hong Kong, but we had sort of fallen in love. It had become our new normal because it was just crazy, but we had fallen in love with the crazy. And we had made a lot of great friends there, Chinese locals and expats alike. And we had really... I guess found our feet there and we're enjoying it I'd started writing my book because I decided I wanted to write a book I just didn't quite know what that would be and as soon as we stepped foot onto Chinese soil I knew it would be about the country so I started doing a lot of research even though I had no clue how to write a book and I by the time I'd been there about 18 months I started doing interviews with all sorts of locals from young women in China to my local hairdresser to an old war veteran and just started trying to find out who these people were and how they felt about their country and their lives and obviously I had a translator I could speak some Mandarin by the time we left but obviously not enough to do an interview yeah so I spent a lot of time doing that and then James got offered a job in Sydney and of course we were sort of humming and hawing because we didn't want to give up life overseas but also it's very hard to get back to Australia and we didn't want to miss our opportunity and Ava was six and you know missing the grandparents and so we decided to say yes it was with a bit of a heavy heart but we thought it's now or never so it was goodbye China.
1: Now this is something I've always wondered about Nicole because as you know I'm from the United States and I now live in the UK and I've always wondered what's it like to go back to where you're from after what seems like was quite an amazing and kind of incredible personal and professional journey through hong kong and china when you step back in australia can you describe what that moment was like for you what sort of feelings yeah, were, was, you were experiencing
0: um, it was very weird you know i just same same but not you know and we chose to live purposely in a suburb that we had never lived in before because i didn't want to go full circle and go back to where we used to live because i almost felt like that would be forgetting what we've done and i didn't want to forget it because it was such a big part of our lives and it was so as you say amazing so we chose this suburb that we didn't know much about but seemed nice uh, it was just different because everything was in high definition, you know, no pollution. So everything was so defined and sharp. The sky was so blue. We'd been wearing masks in China because of the pollution. And, you know, all of a sudden, I guess I could speak to the doctors in the hairdressers and, and that was an easy side. I hadn't driven for seven years, so that was <laughs> challenging. And just, I guess, trying to explain to people what you've been through. And it was lucky that quite a lot of people came to Hong Kong and a few came to China so some good friends knew what it was like but many many didn't and it's really hard to explain to them what you've just been through and I guess they a lot of people will expect you just to pick up where you left off and you really can't because you've changed so much and life is so different for you and people would always say you're going to go back to Sky News you know and I'd be like, no, no, I don't want to go back to Sky News. You know, I want to move forward and do different things. And so I think it took, again, a big adjustment to settle back in. And even just watching TV was quite jarring. The Australian accents and the news was quite colloquial. And, you know, now I watch it every night, but it was just so different to being overseas and not really watching Chinese television because I couldn't understand it. But just another world, I guess.
1: Well, before we talk about some of the lessons you've learned along the way, can you also just explain what you're now up to as a media publicist? What exactly are you now working on with authors?
0: So because I published my memoir, China Blonde, last year in October. So I did a lot of my own publicity because I know the media landscape here and I know a lot of the journalists because they're still around after 20 years, which is great. So I did my own publicity and got some good publicity. And then I had a few other authors come to me and want me to do the same thing for them. So I'm now working with a great, actually a charity, The Life You Can Save by philosopher Peter Singer and philanthropist He's quite well known and he's written a book of the same name and they curate the most effective charities to donate to. So I'm now working, um, doing their publicity for their book. And I've since done a few other um, fiction and nonfiction authors. So just placing, getting them exposure, I guess, on things like podcasts and newspapers and TV and radio. So I love doing that because it's what I know and it's fun and it's easy for me. And I've been doing, as I said, a few presenting gigs as well. So getting back into the studio, I did an advertorial the other week, which was fun just to, because I really, one thing, a lesson I've learned is I told myself for 10 years, I don't think I'd be able to read the auto cue anymore. It's like I told myself this narrative that I couldn't do it. The minute I stepped into Hong Kong, it was over. And then when I went back to do it a few weeks ago, I was shocked that it was actually like riding a bike. And I couldn't believe that for 10 years, I've let myself believe that that was something that would be too difficult for me now. So it's a big lesson. <laughs> I know you haven't even asked me that yet, but just thinking about that is something that I really only discovered very recently. So I'm doing that and media training corporate companies that you know need to know how to get their message across in the media, which is sort of everything coming into the fore and, writing another book so yeah fingers in many pies
1: sounds like you're very busy and definitely involved with a lot of really interesting projects and initiatives and you mentioned lessons there nicole i would love to talk just a little bit about some of the things you've learned along the way before we wrap up by talking a little bit more about china blonde and i'd be curious to hear what is something that you have learned about yourself along this winding journey of yours
0: I think I've learned that I'm quite um, a chameleon and that I tend to fit in and adapt, which is quite a powerful thing to know that you, you know, nothing will be too hard. You'll find your way around it. That's as far as expat life goes or living anywhere, I guess. And work wise, I think I've learned about myself that if I have a goal, I'm very single minded and I find that the way that I achieve what I want to achieve is by sticking to that goal and persevering at any cost, not giving up, looking back to those early days when I got my first journalism job.
1: And as you look back to those earlier days, if you can kind of think all the way back to your days in your 20s, when you were working in Sydney, do you have any advice that you would give to your younger self as it relates to changing careers or relocating to a different country? And if so, what might that advice be?
0: It will always work out and i think one piece of advice which is probably what my mum told me is that nothing's forever so you can panic and get all worked up about should we be moving to hong kong or should we be changing jobs or should we be doing something but at the end of the day you take these leaps and you're not stuck there forever. If it doesn't work out, you can always change jobs. You can always leave the country and go somewhere else or go home. You're never really stuck except of course in COVID, but Uh (laughs) generally I think you should take these risks and take those step out of your comfort zone because generally what comes from that is always rewarding. And often it's far more rewarding even though it seems so difficult at the time to step out of your comfort zone, I think the rewards far outweigh any that say you procrastinated and didn't do it. You would always be kicking yourself and wishing that you'd had the guts to do something. So I think you're better off jumping in head first and even if it is uncomfortable because the rewards will just be tenfold.
1: And when you look back on your career transitions, what's something that you wished you had known that you now know?
0: Oh gosh, every sort of piece of work that you do is all making up to be this whole sum of who you are. You're not just one thing and we do tend to pigeonhole ourselves into certain things, don't we? And I think you are the sum of so many different things and everything really gravitates together to give you so much experience and and, in all more ways than one you know in life and work and so each step you take in life is just another notch in your belt really and I guess I didn't know that when I was younger and you always worry about everything and worry what you're doing and is it the right thing but it helps you grow doesn't it
1: well I want to wrap up Nicole, by talking about one of your recent endeavors, which you did allude to, but wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about your book, China Blonde, which you published last year. Can you just tell me what's it about and how has that journey been for you as an author?
0: It's a memoir. So a snapshot of our time, mainly in China for those two and a half years. And I really just wanted to, I guess, educate and entertain at the same time. And I wanted to show people what the real Chinese are like because all we really hear is, you know, politics and the economy and we don't really know what the real people are like. So I wanted to get that across and explain what they're like, but also it's my journey and what it was like, I guess, as you we've talked about giving up my career and moving to Hong Kong and China and finding my feet and finding a sense of purpose and all the crazy, funny stories that happened in the places we visited. That's what it really is, I guess. And it took probably four years in the making from, you know, those very early days of writing and researching and interviewing. And then it wasn't until I got back to Australia that I could really start doing some courses and learn the craft of actually writing a book and putting chapters together and all of that, which was just a whole other level. (laughs) So it's been a really interesting journey and I've really, I've learned so much. And I still have a monthly writer's workshop, which I go to and we have to submit 4,000 words, so it keeps you accountable. Um, Yeah, so that's what I'm doing and I'm writing fiction now and hoping that that will turn into something and that's based in Hong Kong.
1: Very interesting. For those people (laughs) out there who are aspiring authors, do you have any quick tips
0: Just keep writing. Don't stop. I think the difference between being an author and not is that the author didn't stop because so many people, we start writing, we all think we've got a book in us and we give up, but just finish it. Don't worry too much about the first draft. Just get it all out. And that can always be fine-tuned and edited and what have you.
1: Well, I'm going to keep that in mind myself. if (laughs) If people want to learn more about you, Nicole, or your book, China Blonde, where can they go?
0: Probably the best place is Nicole Web Online. That's my website. And I'm on all the social medias as well Instagram, Nicole Web Online, Facebook, and Twitter. So, yeah, come and say hello. Well,
1: thank you so much, Nicole, for taking the time to tell us more about your life as an expat in Hong Kong and China and how you managed to build a new life and career for yourself there and also back in Australia, and also just the importance of going for it when you have an opportunity come up. So I hope things go well with your book and your work as a media publicist and your advertorial work.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great talking to you.
1: So I hope you heard some useful insights from Nicole about regaining your confidence, building some professional momentum and returning back to your roots. Now it's time to wrap up with today's mental fuel, or I'm gonna share my thoughts on the ebb and flow between doing free work and paid work. Before we get to today's mental fuel, I'd like to thank Grammarly for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Built by linguists and language lovers, Grammarly's writing app finds and corrects hundreds of complex writing errors so you don't have to. And as a Career Relaunch listener, you can download Grammarly for free by going to getgrammarly.com/relaunch. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. And for today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to pick up on something Nicole mentioned about the early days of her writing endeavors. When she had that blog where she wrote parenthood articles for free, Then only later began writing for magazines and eventually monetizing her blog. And this topic of whether to offer a service or product for free is one that comes up a lot with my clients. So I thought I'd share my two cents on how to decide whether to do something for free or to charge for it. And I suppose I'm speaking primarily to those of you listening who may be a solopreneur, freelancer or self-employed business owner offering some sort of product or service to your customers or clients. But hopefully these principles can also be useful to anyone who's just trying to value your professional worth. So I'll start by saying I really wrestled with turning the corner from doing something for free to getting paid for it when I first started my own business about a decade ago. When I first did one-on-one coaching for clients, I did it for free. Now, I did this for a few reasons, some related to pure practicalities and others more related to my own internal barriers. On a very practical level, I needed to accumulate some coaching hours to secure my coaching certification, so just doing coaching was my priority. I was also early on in my coaching career, so I just wanted to practice and develop my coaching skills with some trial clients without the pressure that comes with someone paying you to do something. I was also still working full time, so I didn't have the time or energy for that matter to proactively try and seek out a lot of paying clients. But on a more personal level, I just really enjoyed doing it. I loved and still do love listening to people's career stories and struggles. I really enjoy trying to help people sort through professional issues. And I really love the feeling of someone walking away from a conversation with some sort of newfound clarity. So taking what felt almost like an enjoyable hobby, then suddenly charging someone for it felt a bit awkward. But I'd say what was really stopping me was that I just didn't quite feel ready to charge someone for a service when I still very much felt like a rookie. Then there was a question of how much to charge, And what I eventually charged clients way back in 2013 is much less than what I now charge clients in 2022. I will say that after doing free coaching for a bit, and this happened a bit faster than I expected, I quickly shifted to charging. If you've ever done work for free, it can be okay. But if that work is eventually something you want to turn into an actual job, at some point, You got to start getting paid for it. And this was important to me because it forced me to treat the work with a level of professionalism that I didn't necessarily feel fully pressured to do when I was coaching for free. It kind of forced me to bring my A game to my clients. And it also meant the clients signing up for my coaching felt more invested in it. All of this resulted in me putting more into it, them putting more into it, and both of us achieving greater results which in turn allowed them to feel satisfied with the sessions, me to feel more confident, enabling me to charge more and attract more clients. And this just became a virtuous cycle, creating momentum that I feel allowed me to turn a corner and turn what was a side hobby into my day job. Now, the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because I've found that making the transition from doing something for free to suddenly charging for it can feel a little awkward. At the same time, not charging a fee for something you feel someone could and probably should be charging for can also feel unsettling or even lead to resentment or in some cases make you feel like someone's exploiting you or taking advantage of you or not being respectful of your time. So to charge or not to charge, that is the question. And it's one I've wrestled with since starting my own business and actually still wrestle with to this day. While there's not a magic formula to deciding whether it makes sense to charge or not charge for something, I just wanted to share five situations when I've decided to offer something for free, which I hope can help you figure out whether you should do the same. Number one, to test something out. When you're trying to prove a concept, either to yourself or to others or both. For example, when I launched my first online course, I offered it for free to people during the first week to get some feedback on the content and also to get some public reviews that created some social proof of the course's value. Number two, to gain experience. When I first did public speaking, my main priority was to gain experience in giving talks in front of audiences. So I grabbed every opportunity, paid or unpaid, to speak. That ultimately helped me gain the skills and confidence to eventually do mostly paid speaking engagements, which is now the bulk of my work these days. Number three, as a marketing investment, and more specifically, to drive trial or raise your visibility. For example, in early 2020, I initially hosted one of my online webinars on virtual interviewing skills for my business school clients for free at the time when they were really thirsty for virtual content, when all in-person programming had essentially shut down. This allowed them to get a taste of my virtual webinars, which now comprise more than half of my current paid speaking engagements. Number four, to make a contribution. Sometimes, I just write articles or post resources or speak as a panelist or give stuff away because it's my way of just helping other people when I don't expect or even want anything in return, which I feel is an important part of who I am as a career change consultant and actually one of my main motivations for doing this type of work. And finally, number five, and this one's important, just because I feel like it, just to be useful in this world where... Everyone, especially in the startup or entrepreneurship world, is constantly talking about the path to profitability, finding ways to monetize or gaining tractions or users or paying clients. Sometimes I try to remind myself that it's okay to not charge or to make an exception and charge less. It's okay to not constantly be in selling mode. It's okay to not make money with every single action you take. Money doesn't always equal value, and creating value doesn't always equal billable time. Sometimes I just want to be helpful. For example, when I cross paths with someone who I just enjoy speaking to and I feel well-positioned to help, or someone who's got a really unique story, I may choose to serve as an informal mentor for them instead of establishing a paid career consulting engagement. Or maybe an organization can't afford my regular speaking fees and I make an exception because I want to help the community they serve or because of the opportunity itself. This is your career. This is your business. This is your side project. So you get to do what you want to do with it. If you want to generously offer your time or expertise without charging for it or to charge less than you normally would, go for it. If you feel like it's time for you to turn this into something that generates some income, well, consider what you might charge that feels right for where you are with it right now. But I just wanted to remind you that there's a time and a place in your career to do free work and there's a time and a place in your career when it makes sense to get paid for the work you're doing. You just have to decide which situation you're in given the goals you have for yourself at this specific moment in time, because it's going to have an impact on where you go from here. This takes me to a quote from Zig Ziglar. You are free to choose, but the choices you make today will determine what you will be, do and have in the tomorrows of your life. So my challenge to you is to just consider whether it still makes sense for you to continue doing something you're currently doing for free. You might have very good reasons for continuing to do it for the reasons I described before. But if you've been getting that nagging feeling that it may be time to turn this side work you've been doing into something more, and if you haven't yet found a way to monetize it, I'd just like you to consider what earning even a little bit of money from it could potentially open up for you. Now, even if money isn't your primary motivator or need at this specific moment, that's totally fine. I just suggest you try and pinpoint exactly what you might gain from some sort of monetization, whether that matters to you, and what that means for you. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, you can help this podcast reach even more people by leaving a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can find the links to do that at careerrelaunch.net slash 85, where you can also find highlights from my chat today with Nicole, learn more about her work, or leave a voicemail for me with any question you want to ask or a story you want to share related to your own career change ambitions. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 85. Thanks so much for listening to Career Relaunch and a very special thanks to Nicole Webb for sharing her personal story with us today from Sydney. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Our music was curated by Jonathan rinaldi pohl and the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu and I'll see you next time.